Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 6. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 6. O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. The Lord likens Israel to the clay which had become disfigured and marred as we read in verse 4. And God declares to the people that he himself is the potter. He is able to do with the nation whatsoever he wishes. Now the potter had intended to make a fine and beautiful vessel. But now he can only make something rough. Something fitted for the most common and dishonourable use. Likewise, if Judah will not be a vessel of God's mercy, then it will be fashioned into a vessel of his anger. We thus learn from this text that the affairs of nations are in the hands of God as clay is in the hands of a potter. The Lord deals with nations according to the degree to which they honour him. This is a fundamental truth which our contemporary society does not grasp and to which our political leaders generally do not refer because they generally do not believe in the providence of God. As we consider the end of World War II and the anniversary of VE Day, we must do so in the knowledge that it is the Trinitarian God who establishes the welfare of nations. Whether they are pulled down as we read in verse 7 here, or whether they are built and planted, as we read in verse 9. The Second World War, over more than five and a half years, was of course fought on various fronts. And a major area of conflict was in North Africa, and the Mediterranean region. From a British perspective, crucial to this region was the survival of the island of Malta, which was strategically positioned in respect of the supply lines from German-occupied Italy to the Axis forces in North Africa. Malta was accordingly put under siege by the Germans from 1940 to 1942. 
Now, there was a certain major general in the British Army in 1940 called William Dobby. He was aged 60 and he had 40 years distinguished service behind him. He was now, however, deemed to be too old for any further military role, although he wanted one. But then, in the providence of God, Dobby was appointed as governor of Malta in April 1940. Malta was about to go a most undergo a most horrific pounding from the enemy. And the danger of invasion would always be imminent. So a fiery ordeal lay ahead for the islanders and for their new governor. But there was a vital factor being brought into play. Namely that William Dobby, now made a lieutenant general, was a Bible-believing Christian. Early on in his governorship, he addressed the garrison defending the island and declared, with God's help, we will maintain the security of this fortress. I call on all officers and other ranks humbly to seek God's help and then in reliance on him to do their duty unflinchingly. Italy declared war on Britain on June the 10th, 1940. And the first air raid against Malta took place the next day. At that stage, the island was very poorly defended, possessing only 16 obsolete anti-aircraft guns. Nearly two years later, in May 1942, as Dobby's governorship ended, and as he was flown out of the island as a sick man, Malta was suffering no less than its 2,300th air raid. 2,300 air raids on that very small island. Throughout the previous two years, however, Dobby had provided inspiring leadership, gaining the respect of the Maltese people by his personal bravery and trust in God. Each night in the governor's official residence, Dobby held a prayer meeting, asking for God's protection of the island. And he knew that these prayers were being answered. Dobby subsequently wrote, God's restraining hand kept the Germans from attacking us at a time when we were very ill-prepared to meet such attacks. Another remarkable example of God's providential overruling was that the Germans, as opposed to the Italians, also 
did not invade Malta. When Rommel took command in North Africa in February 1941. Now Rommel had his sights set on Egypt and beyond that, on the Persian Gulf with its oil fields. The capture of Malta would have greatly aided him in that ambitious endeavour. But the German high command uh, lacked the strategic focus to support Rommel. And so an invasion of Malta, whilst being seriously considered, never actually occurred. In the summer of 1942, the situation was increasingly precarious for the British forces in North Africa. Indeed, the situation looked grim on all fronts. Germany was launching a major new offensive against southern Russia and the Baku oil fields. And the U-boats were exacting a heavy toll on merchant shipping in the Atlantic. Tobruk had fallen to Rommel on June the 20th. By June the 29th, the 8th Army had had to retreat to El Alamein. And Alexandria and Cairo were in danger of falling to the Germans. If the Suez Canal were captured by the enemy, this would be an appalling setback to the ongoing war effort. The general situation was so bleak in August 1942 that even Churchill himself was in danger of being assailed by a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons. With the situation in North Africa particularly in mind, the King called a National Day of Prayer for September the 3rd 1942, which was a weekday. Between 11 and 11.15 a.m., factory and office workers gathered around radios to listen to a broadcast service from London. And there were special church services arranged up and down the land. For example, uh, this is what happened in the city of Hull. The Hull Daily Mail reported a service at Holy Trinity Church was well attended by all classes of the community and at Queen's Hall there was a half hour service which united another large congregation. Many other services were held and some have been arranged for the evening. Shops and offices in the centre were closed for a short period during the morning in order that the employees might join in the services or alternatively listen to the broadcast. Girls wearing overalls went to Holy Trinity Church and mingled with hundreds of other people who filled the pews in quiet meditation. We look at the situation in Scotland upon this day. The Arbroath Herald uh, reported on September the 4th the provost, magistrates and town council 
were among the large congregation who attended the National Day of Prayer United Service in the Old Church last night. The Reverend Evan Campbell, in his address, stated, Keeping up morale depended not upon material resources, not even upon human comradeship, but upon fellowship with God. Think of the forces that will be let loose today as our nation gives itself to prayer. Here is the secret of power, endurance, quiet confidence and peace. Let us therefore, in accordance with the desire of our King, unite on this appointed day in genuine prayer and humble, steadfast self-dedication. This day of prayer on September the 3rd, 1942, coincided with the German-Italian offensive against the Eighth Army, known as the Battle of Alam el Halfa. This offensive ended in failure on the 5th of September, due in particular to Rommel's forces being short of fuel and ammunition. So the major German offensive failed two days after the National Day of Prayer. So God's hand was already at work in response to the people's prayers. During this period of September and October 1942, vast preparations were being made by the Eighth Army to launch a counterattack against Germany's Africa Corps. General Montgomery had taken up command of the Eighth Army in August of that year. So the day of prayer on September the 3rd was in the context of the planning of this major counter-offensive in North Africa. The preparations involved the transfer of 900 tanks and the setting up of fuel dumps holding some 7,500 tonnes of petrol. Amazingly, such major logistical developments were not discovered by German intelligence. The British offensive, which would become known as the Second Battle of El Alamein, began on the 23rd of October 1942. And God would not forget the prayers lifted up to him on the previous September the 3rd, and of course subsequently in the following weeks. Now, there were certain providential occurrences which must indeed be attributed to prayer. Firstly, German intelligence was certain that no British and Commonwealth attack would take place in October. And so Rommel's troops were far from geared up to respond to it. 
Also, the German military attaché in Rome, who was in charge of getting fuel supplies from Italy to the Africa Corps, was on leave. And so this crucial task had been neglected. Not only that, on the day that the Battle of El Alamein began, Rommel, incredibly, was not even in North Africa. But he was back in Germany with a serious illness. And his standing general tragically died from a heart attack on the day after the offensive began. Furthermore, Rommel's chief of staff was also away on leave from the battle area at this time. So the German forces were quite simply taken by surprise by Montgomery's offensive. Uh, and as the battle proceeded, a shortage of petrol seriously hampered the enemy's resistance, forcing them into a retreat. This ultimate victory at El Alamein uh, for the Commonwealth forces was a decisive turning point in the whole of the Second World War. And in it, we can see the fruits of prayer. Sir William Dobby wrote in the Spectator magazine in September 1942, there are many today, this writer among them, who have proved without a shadow of doubt that it is no impractical thing to trust in the living God. It is not mere fancy, but a proved fact that prayer to him produces results, in great as well as in small matters. God can and does control the course of events. And he has not only the will, but also the power to help those who rely on him. It is both important and practical to develop our spiritual resources. This involves an adjustment of our attitude to him. And putting away things which are known to be displeasing to him. It is not enough to go on repeating that our cause is righteous. But we have to see to it that we are righteous too. Both nationally and individually. We have to see to it that we are righteous both nationally and individually. Now here Dobby expounds the biblical principle that while God delights to answer prayer, there must first be humility and repentance before him if any prayers are to be heard. This is what the prophet Isaiah tells rebellious Judah in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 where we read, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, 
and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. A nation which persists in rebelling against God cannot expect his help in times of crisis unless there is first heartfelt repentance before him. The king called a further day of prayer on the 3rd of September 1943. This coincided with the Allied invasion of southern Italy. The Nottingham Evening Post reported of the local response, and this just gives us a snapshot of what is taking place throughout the nation. This is what happened in Nottingham on that day of prayer. Whole office staffs left their premises and flocked to the nearest church. In some areas, shops closed for an hour, and these included some of the big Nottingham stores. The seating capacity of the Nottingham churches has never been taxed to such an extent as today, since the crisis which followed the collapse of France. There were prayers for the invaders of Italy, for those engaged in the war, in the various forces, for speedy victory, and the expression of hope that we should be worthy of victory. The Mayor of Nottingham was also quoted as saying this, I am full of thankfulness for the improved position in which we as a nation now find ourselves. Whatever part the nation has played, providence has guided our destiny. Of the response to the day of prayer at a national level, uh, that same Nottingham newspaper stated, Millions of people in cities, towns and villages paused in their work to thank God for successes already granted and to pray for victory. 10,000 people gathered in London's Trafalgar Square to hear the official broadcast service. And there is a photograph of that gathering in the schoolroom. At Waterloo Station... A service was held in front of one of the platforms. Over 200 people sang hymns to piano accompaniment by a policewoman. This was the most widely observed of the eight days of national prayer since the war began. So, in four years of war, up to that point, in September 1943 there had been eight official days of nationwide prayer. This is surely significant and indicative of the residual effects of vigorous gospel preaching in the country in previous generations. Now, there was no great Christian revival taking place, and Britain was certainly no longer a land where the gospel thrived. But at least many still had a sense of the providence 
of God. We are not trying to pretend that the situation was better than it was. The spiritual condition of Britain, when war broke out in 1939, was poor indeed. Theological liberalism had been eating away for decades at the heart of both the Anglican and nonconformist churches. One of the notable pastors who stood against this downgrade and who ministered throughout the war and into the post-war years was Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones, minister of Westminster Chapel in central London. Now, in October 1939, shortly after war had broken out, Dr Lloyd-Jones preached a sermon entitled Why Does God Allow War? And he dealt with the issue of how Britain had used the victory granted to it in God's providence in 1918. His sermon included these words. Under the blessing of peace since the 1914-18 war, men and women in constantly increasing numbers have forsaken God and have settled down to a life which is essentially materialistic and sinful, pleasure-seeking and accompanied by spiritual and mental indolence. This became evident not only in the decline of religion, but still more markedly in the appalling decline in morals. It led to the decadence on which the rulers of Germany banked and on which they based their calculations. They believed that we would not fight because they felt that we had lost our stamina and would allow nothing to interfere with our indolent life. So this is really noteworthy and gives us a great insight from a man delivering a sermon in 1939 and looking back over the previous 20 years. A man who was skillful in reading the signs of the times from a biblical perspective. And Dr Lloyd-Jones tells us that Britain in the 1920s and 30s had become increasingly decadent and Christ-rejecting. And that Germany, because of this, was more willing to risk its expansionist activities, believing that Britain had lost the moral backbone to oppose her. Most people, of course, want to live in peace. But if God does grant a nation peace, What will the people do with it? Do they want peace merely so that they can carry on pursuing their sins and with a life which utterly ignores God? Tragically, in the period between 1918 and 1939, this nation 
did not return to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, despite having been humbled by the horrors of the Great War. Indeed, the opposite happened. There was a great falling away after the Great War, a falling away from the Christian gospel. The chastisement of the Second World War then came, and God again mercifully granted to this nation, after a long struggle and at great cost, an ultimate victory and peace. And it is that victory and peace that we are considering today, 70 years on. But as we consider the victory, the question must be asked, what has the nation done with it? How has the victory been used? The answer is that Britain has made exactly the same mistake as it did in the 1920s and 30s. Resorting to a Christ-rejecting materialism and hedonism. Churches have generally abandoned the supreme authority of Scripture. And biblical Christianity has been replaced with the cultural Marxism, otherwise known as political correctness. God was gracious to us, and we continue to thank him for that today. But we cannot ignore the fact that Britain has generally turned its back upon the faith of the scriptures. We now have a new secular religion of human rights and equality, which has nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. We have become a nation preoccupied with the pursuit of pleasure and immoral lifestyles, not even thinking it necessary to afford protection to heart-beating human life in the womb which we would have done pre-1967 and before the Second World War. We have abandoned the honouring of the Lord's Day. We have abandoned the vital truth that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. To be multi-faith is to be politically correct. And so we must come to our senses as a nation and return to God through faith in Christ alone. How we must cry to him for his mercy to be upon us. God delights in mercy. As we read here in this passage in Jeremiah 18 and verse 8. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And so upon this day, we thank and praise God for mightily and wonderfully delivering this nation 70 years ago. 
And we declare triumphantly with the psalmist in Psalm 33, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. And that was proven by our turning to God in prayer during the Second World War. And we need to constantly keep in our minds the words of Psalm 33 and verse 12 as we consider the victory which was granted to us 70 years ago. It was granted to us that we might honour God for as Psalm 33 and verse 12 declares, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen.